are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. The NBDA would like to offer a sincere note of thanks to Associate Member Bike Exchange for their continued support of the NBDA and retailers at large. BikeExchange.com is the world's leading bicycle marketplace. Across eight countries, Bike Exchange prides itself as being the one-stop destination to buy, sell, and find everything bike. Since 2007, Bike Exchange has fueled the passion to ride by making it easy to buy and sell online. They connect with consumers everywhere to find, research, and buy all their related cycling needs through their marketplace. They also support and connect hundreds of retail bike stores and brands throughout the world. Bike Exchange is committed to helping people find the right cycling product in a single location and is considered the online destination for all things bicycles. Connecting your retail location to Bike Exchange is free and you pay a commission only on what you sell. Join Bike Exchange today and you'll receive a free one-year membership to the Professional Bike Mechanics Association and a free copy of the NBDA Cost of Doing Business Report. This membership and research has a combined value of $750, and it is being provided free of charge to bike retailers that join Bike Exchange today. Learn more at bikeexchange.com. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, produced by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. This is MBDA President Heather Mason. Specialty bicycle retailers are the heart of the cycling industry, and since 1946, the NBDA has existed to strengthen these businesses through education, research, communication, and advocacy. When we create thriving bicycle retailers, the industry and the cycling community follows. The NBDA is a nonprofit supported by the membership of participating retailers and industry partners. If you're not already a member, you can learn more and join online at nbda.com. All right, let's jump in. Today's guest is Don D. Costanzo, founder and CEO of Pedigo Electric Bicycles. Founded in 2008, Pedigo is the leading brand of electric bikes in North America. Pedigo is famous for premium quality, five-star local service, and an industry-leading five-year warranty. A complete line of 19 electric bike models are available at over 200 locally owned Pedigo stores that offer sales, rentals, tours, accessories, and service. Selected as 2021 Entrepreneur of the Year Pacific Southwest, Don spent over 20 years leading innovative products and programs for the automotive industry prior to founding Pedigo. As the CEO of Pedigo, he makes quality innovation and customer service happen every day, and he makes good on his company's goals to delight Pedigo customers and assist Pedigo dealers to be successful. I must say I'm a little nervous and starstruck on this one. I'm going to try to keep it cool. Welcome, Don, to Bicycle Retail Radio. Thank you for coming on the show. Hi, Heather. I'm delighted to be here. No need to be nervous. I'm just a regular guy like everybody else. Oh my God, such an impressive background though. I'm just, I've had the pleasure to work with many of your retailers through the MBDA and get to know their individual stores a little bit. And I mean, you have an amazing brand and amazing culture. So let's dive in. How did, I read a story as I was doing some research that there was a big hill involved, desire for an e-bike. Tell us how you shifted from the automotive industry to want to create an e-bike company. Well, it really started with just that idea. I lived at the top of a hill and I loved to ride a bike down to the beach, but I didn't relish the idea of going up that hill. And as I got older, sometimes I had to get off and push the bike up the hill. 
as we say in non-bike speaker, other words, walk it up the hill. And I heard about electric bikes. So I looked online. I This was back in 2006. There wasn't very much to choose from. And I bought one online. They shipped it to my house. It was a total piece of junk, like the worst piece of garbage you could ever imagine. But that was what was happening back in 2006. But it got me up the hill once I got it running. It took me three months to get it running once I put it together and bought it from the company. It was missing parts and all kinds of stuff. But it got me up the hill. I said, there's something to this. And then I heard that Pep Boys had some used Schwinn e-bikes on sale. And it was a $50 rebate. So I ran down to the Pep Boys store in Ball and said, wow. And yet they're closing them out. What's going on here? So I bought five more that year. In fact, I bought several of them from an e-bike retailer in New York City called Nice Wheels, N-Y-C-E. And I can talk about them because they're not here around anymore. And they claimed on their website that they're the biggest seller of electric bikes in the country. Now, this is in 2006, mind you. But their biggest market's in California. Mm. I said, well, that's kind of messed up. You're in California. I mean, we're in California. And that's your biggest market in New York City. I should open a retail store. So in 2007, I did just that. I opened a retail store in Newport Beach, California to sell everything electric. And this was about two miles from my house. And it was a hobby. At that time, I was in the automotive business. I owned 40 car washes. Wow. And I just said, this is going to be fun. I'm gonna, and I sold everything electric. I sold electric scooters, electric skateboards, electric bikes, electric golf carts, and even an electric car. I had this 3,500 square foot showroom in Newport Beach, California to sell everything electric. And over that one year when I owned the store, I found that there really weren't any really good electric bikes being marketed and sold in this country. And the ones that I was having the most successful selling were Electras. And I was taking Electras and converting them to electric. Mm. Now, for those that know the industry, you know, electric, you know, why would they make electric bikes? So I did that. And then one day, the representative from Electra came into me and said, hey, the owner just found out you're converting these bikes to electric. And he says he's not going to sell you any more bikes if you continue doing that. I said, I'm an electric store. What do you want me to do? And I knew at that point that I made the decision that day that I was going to become the Electra of the electric bike business. By the way, I asked him, I think, did you think Electra will ever come out with an electric bike? He said, never. They think that's taking a perfectly good bike and ruining it by putting a motor on. I said, well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Because my success was selling townies and cruiser bikes, Electras, and putting a battery pack on the back and a motor in the front wheel. And customer, I couldn't build them fast enough. So I decided to become the Electra of electric bikes. That was in 2008. And that's when Pedego started. And I literally sold the store. The guy converted to a bike shop, has since failed because he tried just to be a bike shop and didn't like electric. And I started Pedego. Wow, that's an amazing story. So you just dove in. Like, how did you know about sourcing? And you just went after it. You were just determined and just- Not a clue, not a clue. <laughs> I don't know. If you told me two years earlier, I'd be in the bike business. I'd say, I knew nothing about it. I don't even ride a bike. Why would I be in the bike business? <laughs> and yet I took on it. Well, I found a big hole in the industry. I mean, I'd go to the bike shops and ask them why they don't carry electric bikes. And oh my God, you'd think I'd ask them, you know, why they don't have cancer. Like it was unbelievable. Like, oh my God, oh, electric bikes, get out of here. I'm like, whoa, you don't realize there's an, an aging demographic here that likes the idea of an electric bike. And I'd be one of them. My friends all loved them. I said, I can't be all wrong about this. What's interesting though, is uh, during this evolution of the brand itself, in the beginning, we really struggled to sell them. We couldn't get bike shops to sell them. We'd find a couple of scooter shops that would sell them. They never did a good job. They only did it when the guy couldn't get a license or insurance that sell uh, Pedego. They were there to sell scooters, but you know, Pedegos were kind of in the back room in case the guy couldn't get a license. 
and bike stores forget about it. I mean, I, I was thrown out of more bike shops. I'll never forget. I went into one bike shop and I said, why don't you guys carry electric bikes? And the guy beats on his chest. He says, it's not in our DNA. Uh, okay, well, it's in mine. But by the way, three years later, you can Google it. You can Google Miley Cyrus Pedigo. And this is honestly got to, there's 91 pictures in People Magazine of Miley Cyrus riding her Pedigo. And the caption is, Miley upgrades her Electra to a Pedigo. Oh, wow. You can that Google it. It's on there. You'll see in 2011. That, that's when I knew I might have had an idea. Took another three years for Electra to decide maybe they needed an electric bike. Yeah, I mean, Don, you were starting at a point where, as you're saying, e-bikes weren't really, they weren't connecting. We weren't really, it was just really the past couple of years where we've seen significant growth. I mean, you really held on and, and stayed true to it. That probably took a lot of tenacity, right? I mean, to see your vision. No, because actually, because I was tremendously successful. I mean, I was successful from day one. 2008 was when the money, when the company started. We started selling bikes in 2009. We sold $444,000 worth of electric bikes in year one. Wow. And then year two, we did 1.1 million. Year three, we did 2.3 million. We just continued to grow. And beginning in 2011, we turned a profit and became cash flow positive since 2011. Here we are 11 years later, we're still cash flow positive, still turning a profit. And we have every year since then, quarter over, our sales have been an increase. But what made it unique and unlike the bike industry and probably unlike anything, I modeled this business model after Schwinn. Mm. In the 1960s, Schwinn built stores that were called Schwinn. You'd go to the Schwinn's dealer, right? And it might be Don Schwinn, which happened to be the one here in Tustin. Quincy, same as my last name. And you would go to Don Schwinn. Now, Don might also sell lawnmowers, Don might, but he only sold the brand Schwinn. He didn't sell Raleigh. He didn't sell any other brand. He sold Schwinn. And I had all the manuals from that. A buddy of mine had, had somehow accumulated. He was a Schwinn dealer in the 60s. He let me borrow all their manuals. I just followed their prescription. And you know what? It worked then, and it's working now again, just modernized. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways that you could have launched a company into the U.S. and working with retailers from dealer programs to whatnot. But it sounds like you really had a very particular product that quickly took off and getting some retailers who are really behind the product becoming really vested in it was the smart way to go. Well, there's a couple of things that I learned along the way. The first thing is, is this business doesn't work unless you're passionate about it. If you're in it to get rich, you pick the wrong business, okay? And that's true just of a bike retailer and an electric bike retailer. The second thing that I learned is that the consumer that buys an electric bike wants to be treated differently than a bike consumer. If you go in and you want to ride it, you go into a bike shop and you're talking about a road bike or a gravel bike or whatever bike, they expect you to have some degree of sophistication about bikes. And the thing that brought this home to me, I was in business, I think, five years. And one day, a bike shop owner asked me, what group set do we use? I said, I don't know. What's a group set? He looked at me. He says, you own Pedego? I said, yeah. He says, how can you not know what a group set is? I don't know. Nobody's ever asked me what a group set is. I did not know what a group set is. For those of you who don't know what a group set is, maybe Heather can explain it to you, because I still don't know what a group set is. But apparently... <laughs> Apparently, that's an important thing you've got to know if you want to buy a bike. You have to add people want to know what kind of group set do you want. Who knows what a group set is? I can tell you our customers, the Pedagogue customers, the hundreds of thousands of Pedagogue customers, not once have they ever asked us what group sets on the bike. Does that tell you everything? It says a lot. It says a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, the website is jam-packed for our listeners. It's pedagoelectricbikes.com. And I mean, 200 locally owned stores? Are these franchises or branded stores? Well, you've asked a lot of questions and that's all answered. First of all, they are not franchises, they're licensees. 
Right. And what that says is that you, if you want to, Heather, if you want to open one up wherever you live, you want to open one up on Main Street USA, you sign an exclusive agreement with us that you're only going to carry Pedigo in your store. In exchange for that, we agree not to put another Pedigo store, any retail presence in a geographic area. So you get exclusivity for giving us exclusivity. You say it's kind of like a marriage. You know, if you're married to one or another, the two of you, you agree to have exclusivity. That's the same thing we have. We develop an ongoing partnership and a relationship with our stores. And our success is tied to their success. The only way you can get a pedigo is through a store. There's no way you can't buy them online. Well, you can buy them online, but it's going to come from a store. So we, we don't ever put at risk our relationship with our stores because we want to make sure that we're 100% committed to their success. If I sell around them with anything else but them, then I, I violated my, my breach. I breached my agreement with them. I'm not going to sell around you. So that has made us successful. The other thing I think is, is that we only have maybe two or three stores out of 240 that were in the bike business to start with. But we've opened up probably 30 or 40 stores in the early days that were bike shops. They all failed selling our products. Number one, they couldn't buy into our philosophy. They had to be exclusive. They wanted to carry multiple brands. That's certainly their choice. But our philosophy did not work with them. Number two, they really didn't like electric bikes. They only brought them on because they could thought take make money on them. In the early pioneer days, it didn't work. Customers smell that out right away. So in order for the business model to work, we've got to be partners with our stores. So we make sure that they make an adequate, reasonable margin. We don't discount our bikes. We don't recommend it. We have strictly enforced map pricing so that the retailer can make a fair price. So he can be around to provide service. And we talk about service. Every dealer's trained, they assemble the bikes, they make sure that they're all properly done, that the bolts are tight, that the, the brakes work and all that. That's unlike online retailers where they just leave it to the whim of the person that gets the bike in the mail. And I was that guy that got the bike in the mail. It literally took me three months to get it to work. Okay, I thought I will never do that. I'll never sell a guy a bike in a box unless it's fully assembled and tested before it goes in the box. And we did in the early days, we did that when we didn't have stores everywhere. The other thing early on, I kind of cheated the, the, the Google system. When we opened up and we started opening Pedigo stores in 2011, I put a Pedigo store on the internet at 123 Main Street in 270 top market areas that I could find. So if you were going to go to Pedigo Omaha, you would type in Pedigo Omaha. Wow. Oh, my God. you're I'm driving up and down Main Street. Where's your store? Oh, well, we just put that on there as a marker. Would you like to open one there? And Google at that time let you get away with that. So Google thought we had 270 stores. When we never, we, we haven't even gotten quite gotten to what we lived up to. But that was my goal, to have one in all 270 major market areas. We're getting close. We're getting real close to being in all those market areas. So I, Google doesn't let you get away with it anymore. They're, they're going to check to make sure you got a real address. Oh, my gosh. That's fantastic. So the other thing I can tell you, I mean, like I said, I have spoken and worked with many of your retailer partners. They're all fabulous people. They've got this personality that's just like seeping out and you can tell that they love what they do. And many of your retailers have even sent me pictures inside their store of their shop dog, whatnot. So how do you how do you qualify people when they reach out to you that they want to start a business? Are there certain things that have to fit within the pedagogue culture? Yeah. So in the early days, before when we first started with the first Pedigo store, actually opened in 2010. It was called Pedigo Junction. And the guy came to me and he, he didn't know much about the bike business, semi-retired, wanted to open a store in just outside of Detroit in Harrison Township. He said, I want to call it Pedigo Junction. I thought, wow, yeah, why not? Let's let's let him do it. So that became the first Pedigo store that had Pedigo in the name. Up until then, it was just independent bike stores and people that wanted to carry the brand. 
Then another guy came to me from Huntington Beach and he said, hey, Don, I'm a Pedego customer. I love my bikes. My family all has them. I've got like 50 friends that have bought Pedagos. I want to open a store in Huntington Beach. I want to do nothing but sell Pedagos. I said, Tom, I would love to have you do that. So he opened the first store. Then he opened the second store in Corona Del Mar. He says, I want to open a whole bunch of these. I said, how many? He said, I don't know, five or six. I said, why don't you come with me and let's open 100? <laughs> Honest to God, I said, let's open 100. Well, when he got to 100, he retired. He still owns the store in Huntington, but once he got the hundred, he said, okay, this was fun, but I'm going to retire. So Tom retired, still a great friend of mine. And he helped. Now, since then, we've got somebody else doing our business development, Cynthia Newcomb, and she's doing an amazing job in, you know, working with the dealers. We're not trying to sell a franchise or sell a business. We're trying to find partners. Mm. And those partners that are like-minded, they believe in the concept. We don't advertise for stores. Almost every new store started out by going into an existing store and buying a Pedigo. Mm. And then they go home to Omaha and they say, hey, there's not a store in Omaha. Can I open one here? And then we go through a process. You know, we go through a kind of a qualification process to make their good fit. But before they sign on and before they sign on that regular dot, I visit with them or do a Zoom call with them to make sure that they, so I know all 200. I don't think there's a single one that I haven't met personally. So I know them all and they all have my cell phone number and they can all call me because I'm their partner. And we had a store in San Diego that got robbed one night. And oh. the guy called me the next day. So, you know, they broke in, they broke the glass, they went all the way to the back of the store, they took our most expensive bike, our full suspension mountain bike, and they made off with it. I go, oh my God, this is terrible. I said, well, you didn't lose a bike, we did. And I'm going to replace the bike oh. for you at no charge. And you just have to take care of the glass. I'm sure your insurance company would cover it. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're covering everything. I said, well, then you're not on it. They didn't steal a bike from you, they stole it from us. So I replaced the bike with them. And oh. there's a couple other cases like that. And the dealers are in kind of, some type of difficulty. We're there for them. We're like, we're their partners. Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we help them? That's you think I gave the guy a million dollars, but I don't know how to do business any other way. The other thing that we do that we're really proud of is we have the best customer service by any rating you can have. We get rated all the time. We've got better customer service than Apple, than Tesla. All the net promoter scores that we have are off the charts because our goal is to delight the customer, not satisfy them, not take care of them, but delight them. And that's a different challenge that everything everybody else has. So our two goals at the company are, number one, delight the customer, and number two, make our dealers successful. The only way we can delight the customer is to make our dealers successful. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, with the boom of e-bikes, we have a lot of retailers reaching out that are getting into the industry, opening up e-bike stores. Have you had more people reach out in the last two years to start? Oh, yeah. we. I don't want to say we want to beat them off with a stick, but we're, let me just put it this way. We're getting a much better quality of store because in many market areas, we have multiple people wanting to open a store in that market area. So we get to pick. In the early days, if they had a credit card and a pulse, would pretty much make them a pedigo store. <laughs> but they had to have the passion, too. Yeah, they have had a credit card, a pulse and some passion. Some of them I would challenge whether or not they had a pulse or not. But those have kind of waned as the model builds out and, you know, they don't last. But we've only had one fail since 2011, one out and out failure. And that person didn't fail because we did everything we can to rescue that person. But they didn't pay thirty seven thousand dollars worth of sales tax that they collected to the state. And so that state shut them down. There's not a whole lot I could do about that. You don't collect sales. They're just not a very good business operator, but she turned out to be a very good sales manager in one of our other stores now. So at the end of the day, that's not really a failure. It's just somebody that wasn't designed to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm noticing that many bicycle retailers, you know, some of them are expanding and opening additional locations. And those might be just 
e-bike only locations. So I'm hopeful that we're going to see this growth continue in the coming years. Well, you know, I think that that point is very well taken. It's pretty hard to mix regular bikes in with e-bikes. Some stores have done it successfully. Most fail at it because there's a cultural difference between the type of customer that buys an electric bike and one that buys a regular bike. And by the way, my view is, is that you've got to be dedicated and committed and have staff that's dedicated and committed. Just to say, I'm going to open up next door. I'm going to I'm going to knock down a wall and add a part of that. It always gets muddled. I mean, I've seen dozens try it and dozens fail. In fact, I can't think of a single successful where that happened. The problem, though, is the consumer and the brand. So there's there's three types of brands out there. There's a brand that sells anywhere they can, including online and competes with their stores. There's a brand out there that sells only online and they expect local stores to service them. And then there's a brand that's dedicated and committed to their retailers. Okay, so if you're going to open up a store, you need the last one. If they're dedicated retail and one that's partnering with them, that they're not adversaries or they're not selling them at REI or they're not selling them at Walmart. They're not selling them on Amazon. Go down the list because you can't have it both ways. And then the final and most important thing you got to look at is make sure they've got the service network of the service parts and turn to fix them because they're going to break. They're going to need batteries. It's unimaginable to me how many electric bikes are in the marketplace today. And customers will not be able to get a replacement battery. Right. Some case, a charger. We had a customer that said, hey, I bought a bike online. I ran over the, the charging cord with my lawnmower. Right. I called them up and asked them for it. Nope, we don't have replacement charger. What's your answer? Well, you have to buy a new bike. Really? The charger? Well, how does, how does that work? No responsibility. Didn't think it was a big deal. You just have to buy another one. Like, well, that's just the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. We've made bikes since 2009. I can fix every bike we've made. I have a part here. And if I don't have the part and I can't fix it, I'll give you a new bike. We made a model of folding bikes. We made 100 of them and sold them. And they were 5% of our sales and 95% of our headaches. So we discontinued it. And occasionally a customer will call that bike. I say, how much did you pay for it? I'll give you full credit. Did you pay for that bike 10 years ago toward a new pedigree? Wow. They love it. They can't believe it because I can't fix it. I can't get the parts. So standing behind the product is something they got to look at too. Just selling e-bikes sounds easy. It sounds really easy. It's not. It's a complex purchase. There's a lot of decision. It takes an hour or two to spend time with that customer to educate them, to teach them how to ride it, to teach them the right safety techniques to make sure they don't hurt themselves. I don't know how the online guides do it. I just don't understand from a safety perspective how they can. But if you're going to be a retailer and you're going to open up a store, Make sure that the brand is committed to you as a store. Make sure they get the support and the staff. Go visit them. And you just have to have confidence that you're their partner, not just somebody that's going to sell e-bikes for them. The other thing that happens is we lost a store that was a multi-brand store. By the way, I said not single Pedego stores failed except for one. We've had a lot of e-bike retailers that failed because they insisted they wanted to carry other brands. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think there were five cases I can think of where somebody said, we're carrying Pedego, but we want to carry other brands. I said, hey, have a party. But you know what? We're not going to support it anymore. You go ahead and do it, but we're going to stop selling you bikes because that's not our business model. You either sell Pedego or you don't. I don't want to sound arrogant, but it's not fair to the other stores that are committed to the Pedego brand. All five of those retailers failed. One of them failed very quickly because he began selling a lot of bikes he couldn't get parts for. And he ended up closing the store because he had people lined up every day when he got to work every day, lined up saying, hey, you sold me the bike. You fix it for me. Well, that company went out of business. He goes, I don't care. You sold it to me. So that's something you have to be very wary of. You're a retailer. You don't want to buy. And if you're a consumer, you don't want to buy a bike knowing you can't get service. The number one thing that people tell us why they buy a Pedego today in survey we just finished is because they have confidence they can get it fixed anywhere in the U.S. and Canada. Wow. They go to any Pedego store and they're going to take care. And the fact is they, they can't. It's just like buying a Chevy 
in California, you can get it fixed in New York. Same thing with a pedigo. If you buy one in California, you can get it fixed in New York. Yeah, just go to the pedigo dealer. So I was going to ask you, because you're the expert on selling e-bikes, for our retailers who are listening, who are trying to sell more e-bikes, everything you just mentioned, but my question is, like, is the test ride important? And any other tips you would give to retailers for selling? Well, the first thing I would say is, is that make sure you the bikes you sell have throttles on them. Okay, pedal assist and throttle, because that's what the customers are buying. There's so many retailers that think, no, I'm not going to put a throttle on it. That makes it a motorcycle. Well, it's nice for you to make that decision. But in fact, the consumers, almost 70% of all the bikes imported have a throttle on. You may not like throttles, but the consumers like throttles. So there's no way as a retailer, I would even consider selling a brand that doesn't carry a throttle on. Okay, just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, pedal assist, great. Great thing. Most of our customers love pedal assist. They also like the throttle. A lot of times they buy a bike only because it has a throttle. A lot of the competitors think in their in their brilliant wisdom that they've declared that a class two bike is a motorcycle. That's their opinion. That's not the law requirements. It's their opinion. So the other thing I think that's really important is recognize that the customer is not a cyclist typically. I mean, there are cyclists to buy, but of the whole universe of population, you could argue that five or 10% are a cyclist, depending on how you define a cyclist, right? Heather, how many would you say, or how many people in the US are cyclists by your definition, whatever that is? What percentage? 20, 30%, maybe not. Really? Even. You think that many people, 20 or 30%, you go down the street and take a survey and said, you ride it. Now, I say a cyclist is somebody who rides something 12 or more times a year. That's oh. my definition. All right, 10%, 10%. Okay, let's say it's 10%, okay? That's not our market. Our market's the other 90%. Yeah. If you told me it's 30%, I wouldn't, I'd say fine, 30. 70% is our market. We're not further. If you're a hardcore cyclist, you probably shouldn't get an electric bike. Stay in that world, pedal as long as you can until you age out or something else causes you not to, and then get an electric bike. But the customer that are buying an electric bike, they're looking for a comfortable bike. They're not looking to be in a down prone position. I mean, customers that we have want to sit upright. Okay. Yeah. And I say, we make, we may listen, by the way, if they want to be uncomfortable, we make plenty of bikes to make uncomfortable. I say, you want to be comfortable? This is the bike for you. You want to be uncomfortable? Then you can lean down and you can be in this prone position. Why do cyclists ride down like this? Why? Arrow, right? Exactly. You need arrow on when you have an electric motor? <laughs> no. Absolutely not. You do not need one. So that you throw that out the window. Is it comfortable to ride like that? Do you like the pressure on your shoulders and your elbows and your neck and elbow? And what about visibility? Do you have more visibility when you're sitting upright and you've got full range of motion in your head? Or do you have more visibility when you get your nose looking down at the ground? So what's safer? I'd argue it's much safer to sit upright on a bike than it is down. And yeah. by the way, you're talking to a guy who, who bought a Schwinn when I was 13 years old, a Schwinn Varsity. And the handlebars are really down low. And I ended up trading it in for a Continental because they had the handlebar with the extension on it. You couldn't get it for the Varsity. But in order to get the handlebars where you didn't have to lean down and reach them, you could sit you know, up higher, Was you had to get the Continental. And then I traded it in for a Raleigh Supercourse. So it's not like I'm not a cyclist. I never rode a cycle. But when I was 16 years old, I discovered cars and girls. And I literally didn't ride a bike for 40 years until I got an electric bike. And electric bikes brought me back into the cycling world. What the heck is wrong with that? Nobody knows your bike shop better than you, but the people who might come the closest are other bike shop owners who are facing the same day-to-day and long-term challenges that you are. Joining a P2 group is one of the most affordable ways to take a deep dive into your business alongside other bike shop owners who are experts in what you do. 
Reach out today so we can tell you more about how a P2 group can make a difference in your business. Yeah, it's so great what electric bikes have done for bringing more people into the sport. I think too often because we're in the industry every day and, you know, we're racers or we're riders or we're cyclists, like we just tend to think about like us and our population, but we forget that there's 90% of consumers out there would just like a really fun, nice riding bike. So it's speaking to them. I'll tell you, for 10 years, I went to the Bicycle Leadership Conference in Monterey, Okay. And I was persona non grata the day I arrived. And I still went, I listened to these guys. And every year I just laughed. There was a bunch of guys that were real estate that were bicycle executives. And they get in a room and they talk about how we get more people on bikes, more people on bikes, more people on bikes. I'm sitting in the room, I got the answer, but nobody wants to listen to me. I got shunned in more than once from any kind of conversation about electric bikes. I was totally persona non grata. And then for three years in a row, they said, we got the answer. We're going to get more women on bikes. So again, Three years in a row, we're going to get one. 70% of the bike's pedigo sells are to women. I already know how to get women on bikes. Sell them an electric bike. What the heck is wrong with you? And I think that's still true today. I think there's still a lot of people. How do we get more people on bikes? How do we get more people on bikes? Finally, after 15 years, the way you get more people on bikes is sell them an electric bike. And by the way, do you think these people have locks? you think they have baskets? Do you think they have helmets? Do you think they have lights? You think they have cycling gear? They got none of that. None of that. They come in the store, they buy the bike and they say, I need one of those. I need it. Oh, you need a bike? Oh, you have a bike? Oh, I don't have a bike. Oh, we got electric going. I mean, just go down the list. The accessories we sell are just unbelievable. And by the way, people like to do business with people they like. Mm-hmm. And our sto- I get emails all the time and notes and saying, we love your store. We love your store here. We love this person. We know, We love Paul. We love Linda. We love... These are just the greatest people. We've got new friends. They use that word all the time. The store owner became their friend. I don't know if that happens in the cycling world or not, but it happens in our world every day. And then we do these baloozas. I think we're doing 150 this year. They're events. They're customer appreciation events. No selling involved. The stores close up for the day. They, they invite people sometimes to the park, sometimes at the front of the store. And we go out for a ride and we have lunch and we give away prizes and award pins for how many miles they, they went. Okay. And believe it or not, we give out a lot of 100-mile pins. This is a big achievement for some people. One woman came up to me at the first one of these events and affirmed me I'm doing the right thing. And she came up. She goes, can I hug you? I said, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. You can hug me. So she hugs me. She goes, see, I don't have to use my cane anymore ever since I started riding my pedigree. Oh, my God. And I had another woman recently tell me that she calls her pedigo her Prozac on two wheels. <laughs> And I said, why is that? She goes, well, I was on antidepressants for the longest time. And once I got my pedigo, I don't need them anymore. All I do when I get a little down and out, I go out and ride my bike. Oh. So now who could say that about a regular bike? Maybe some people can, but it's that finite amount of the population. The fact is that people who ride electric bikes are happier. And you know something that's really weird? We don't get any bad customers. And some industries get customers that are just not nice people. Mm-hmm. Never had a one. Not a single one. Everybody who buys our products are happy, upbeat, joyful people. So we celebrate. We're having our Grand Palooza here in, in 10 days at the Huntington Beach. I'm hosting a ton of customers that are come down and watch the air show. We're going to feed them and we're going to love on each other because they love their bike. I love them. It's just a love fest. And I look forward to that uh, day every year because uh, Southern California dealers all get together and we feed them and we watch the air show again. It's just a customer appreciation day. I love that idea. I love that. 
I noticed on your website that rentals and tours are part of the way you connect with your community. How is that? Has that been a good thing for the business? Uh, Heather, I didn't want to give away our secret. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, I'm going to do it. I don't. It's all right. The secret to success of our businesses is, is people need to try the bikes. If they rent the bikes, most of our store owners become store owners because they go and rent a place. So there's two, over 200 places in, in the U.S. and Canada where you can go rent a Pedego and fall in love with it without owning it. So when anybody asked me, should I buy an e-bike? I said, absolutely not. No way. Don't buy an e-bike until you rent one. Mm. Go try them. And then rent a few of them until you find the, to find the right one. We were at the grand opening of a store a couple of years ago. And this uh, this guy in his, probably in his 60s came and he drives in in a brand new Audi A8. Expensive car, right? Mm -hmm. And so I start chatting with him. I said, what are you here for? He says, well, I'd like to buy, I'm thinking about buying your Pedego Element. That's our 1895 bike. It'd be like going, you know, going to a Mercedes dealership to buy a Chevy. Okay. But that's okay. We have a low end bike. I said, what are you going to use it for? He goes, well, my wife's 20 years younger than I am. And I like to go riding with her and I can't keep up with her anymore. Wow. Said, well, how far does she ride? She's typically about five miles. I said, well, then you came to the right place. I think we have the right bike for you. She goes, well, you kind of look, he goes, you kind of looked at me funny when I said the element. Well, I said, I looked at your car you're driving. I said, I just didn't think, but hey, it might be the right bike for, I don't know. He goes, what do you suggest I do? I suggest you come back here and rent them for the day and try them out. So that was on a Thursday. It was our grand opening evening. On Saturday, he went back. Not only did he buy a bike and a Platinum Interceptor, I might add, which is a $4,500 bike, his wife bought one too, because they decided they could go a lot further than that. So he spent $4,500, he bought $9,000, plus he bought a bike rack and he bought all the things to go, and he's re redefined his life. Okay. So what happened? We got the guy in there. He thinks he's going to buy an 1895 bike, which is, by the way, it's a great bike, but he ended up buying expensive because he wanted the comfort and the upright ride and all the bells and whistles, just like he did when he bought his Audi A8. He could have bought an A4 and A3 and it had been half the price, but no, he bought an A8. So I knew that guy was going to buy, but he didn't know any better. No education. By the way, our store owner spent two and a half hours with him and his wife. And his wife decided that this was appropriate for her because then, because they said five miles isn't enough. I want to ride further than five miles. She can still go out and get all the exercise she wants and ride all day long and he can ride with her and there's no competitive, no competitiveness in it. And nobody worried about not being able to keep up. Or like when my wife and I ride, it used to be, oh, you're going to go up that hill. No, I'm not going up that hill. No, I'm not going down that hill because I go down the hill and I go up the hill. None of that on an electric bike. You, you look at the hill and say, oh my God, a hill, let's go. I'm going to tell you that it's more fun to ride an electric bike up a hill than it is down a hill. Yeah. Honestly, it makes it, I mean, the few times I've been on an electric bike, which not enough, I'll be honest with you, but every single time it just, let, it takes all that like worrying, like, am I going to be able to keep up? Is this going to be fun? Am I going to be sweating? It, it, and you just have a good time. I call it empowerment. You feel empowered. You yeah. can now ride, and this is even more important for people who are non-cyclists, okay? But they're non-cyclists, and I will never forget in the early days that there were bike shops that would argue against electric bikes. Well, they're inexperienced. You know, we shouldn't allow all these electric bikes out there. They're inexperienced riders. Wait a minute, inexperienced? How did we all start out? <laughs> inexperienced riders. What kind of argument is that, that they're inexperienced? Yeah, maybe they are, but then they become experienced. Mm -hmm. I want to switch a little bit. I know you're on the People for Bikes e-bike subcommittee. Any concerns or challenges you think for the future of e-bikes and continued growth? So I've been on the electric bike committee since its inception. And I was in a, in a room in 2013 in Las Vegas where we voted for and against throttles. Twelve members voted against throttles. I voted for them. We left the room. I went back to California and I decided I was going to introduce legislation to allow throttles. And I beat them to the punch. Surprised they didn't kick me out then. They've tried to, but at that time they didn't. And I introduced legislation, big brouhaha in the industry that I was a bad guy for introducing trials. 
I said, look, I'm going to do every nickel. I'm going to spend every nickel I can to, to promote the idea of a throttle because I think they're safer. And I also believe that you would put me out of business if you decided you didn't want to put throttles. It would ser- seriously stymie the, uh, the bike industry. Well, we reached a compromise and that's what the class one, class two, class three is all about. A lot of nonsense to kind of appease me and appease them and come up with legislation. And now I think 38 states have passed a similar legislation. So it's great. And there's been some fighting and fighting along the road. At one point, I was asked to leave a meeting because I challenged people for promoting class one over class two, which was not the agreement we'd made. I asked if I paid my dues and they said, yes, then you're going to have to physically remove me from the room because I, I believe what you've done is wrong. It's not what we agreed to. And I'm going to stay here and fight for class two bikes. And I, I did. And I have ever since then. So what's coming down there, the, the industry's done an amazing job. People for bikes is that it was actually before it was people for bikes. It was the bicycle coalition. I forgot the name of it now, but they're the ones that did all the, the heavy lifting. When people for bikes got it, when they merged with the manufacturers group, they just had to then push it forward. And they, they also have done an amazing job getting that done. But the biggest challenge ahead faces us is safety. Mm. Okay. There's people getting killed on electric bikes. There's people that are getting maimed on electric bikes. There's people that have no reason or no knowledge about anything to do with how to ride a bike. And they're buying a bike online. They're going out and riding it and they're getting killed. Okay. And unfortunately, it's getting down to the younger ages. Now, during that legislation, when we debated what we're going to put in the bill, I fought hard for helmets. And I fought hard for 20 miles per hour. Those are the two big things that I really thought were important. Oh, and I fought for a minimum 16-year-old use. I didn't believe anybody under 16 should have an electric bike. Mm -hmm. Well, I lost on all three of those things. There isn't In California, there is no minimum age. There is no helmet requirement, except if you're under 18, because that applies to bicycles. And what was the third one? I forgot already. Age, helmet, and I don't know. Maybe I repeated. Well, you can play it back. Anyway, (laughs) so, you know, I lost on the helmet. I certainly lost on them in a major required. Well, now we've got all these kids buying these bikes and they're souping them up and they're making them going faster and manufacturers are allowing it. You go on the on their website and they say, yeah, we sell them for 20 mile per hour and they really will go 35. All you got to do is do this and you can do it. So they make them easily defeatable. Okay. Not the intention at all. So first of all, they're too young. Okay. So they have no knowledge or experience about bike safety. And I'm on a committee here. We're going to do, we're doing, we're moving forward here to teach them in the schools how to ride. They're not going to go away. Kids are going to ride the bikes. It's not against the law. We don't ever sell or promote an electric bike to anybody under 16 unless their parent is with them and that we sure that they've got the proper safety training on. We're actually working with a lot of folks to do safety training. A lot of our stores are certified league of American bicyclists, Excellent. certified trainers. Well, we hand out these smart cycling guys, the League of America, and they're certified uh, cyclists. But every every store hands these out. We go through it. We bought a whole bunch of them. We hand them out. We buy them 10000 at a time. Our stores hand them out. We put them on our tour bus. We review safety with people. We've got to teach people basic safety. Most electric bike riders aren't experienced, okay? And so they don't even know about dooring, okay? Mm-hmm. I didn't know what dooring was until I almost got doored by my own car. Yeah. How could that happen? Well, I have a car that the door opens automatically when you go by it. And I had the key in my pocket. We're out doing a film shoot. And as I rode by my car, the door flew open. Oh, my goodness. Thank God I knew about dooring because I was, you know, I was far enough out. Yeah. Almost Could you imagine an electric bike guy gets doored and killed by his own electric, by his electric car? Because that's what it was. It would be a big headline. <laughs> but dooring's a big issue. Okay, riding on the sidewalk in the wrong direction. Cars aren't looking. There's just so many simple things that we could teach and educate. We can save lives. So our goal is to save lives. Okay, save lives. I don't care what brand they're buying. Our stores are providing training programs. There's one going on in Fort Collins Saturday. 
I just saw a notification to provide safety training. That's a big issue. That could really, really do a damage to the electric bike industry if the industry doesn't get, doesn't get behind it. You know, they banned three-wheel trike vehicles, and they had to go to four-wheel because the three wheels were just not safe for going those speeds, and people were falling. We as an industry need to get behind it, and I'm not that excited about what's going on right now as far as it's like, we're going to study it. We're going to do this research. We're going to do this research. Like, no, we're just out there doing training. We're not going to study anything. We're going to go out there and provide training. We can save one life today because we provided a training class on Saturday in Fort Collins, Colorado. Then it was worthwhile doing the training program. The league has some really good, really good stuff. I'm a little sour on the league right now because after we committed the training and all these folks did it, they told us that our insurance doesn't cover class two bikes. Excuse me? Never heard of such a thing. What do you mean it doesn't cover? You cover class three to go 28 miles per hour? You don't want to do a class two? What's the difference? Well, our insurance company, just an insurance company nonsense, okay? Just crazy. It's like, okay, so people who have class two shouldn't be, shouldn't be safe? They're not allowed to get safety training? Yeah. Most preposterous. There's, there's so many things in the bike industry just frustrate the heck out of me. But I'm super thankful for it because if the bike industry knew what I knew, Pedigo wouldn't exist today. They wouldn't give me a chance to have all these stories. And I'm kind of like, I don't even sound arrogant about it, but catch me if you can. I got 250, 40 stores and adding a store a week that we have for the past three years. We'll get to a thousand stores eventually. We're going to get there slow and steady and we're going to win the race. And there's nobody else committed to the electric bike business like we are at the retail store level. There's so many things you said there that I'm connecting with. And I, I love that you're educating consumers on the risks. We really need to. We all just, you know, for the future of e-bikes, we have to get together on this. So I'm so happy to hear you say that. I did want to ask you, you know, looking to the future, any thoughts about e-bikes as far as used bikes, secondhand e-bikes in the marketplace? Oh, yeah, there's a ton of them. Our bikes have really good value. A lot of our stores take trade-ins. I mean, this is like an automobile. This is a big investment for some people. But, you know, people take a different view about the investment in an electric bike. You know, if you buy an electric bike for $3,000 and it lasts you 10 years, how much a year did it cost you to own that bike? Not that much. 10 years, $3,000. It cost 10 years, $300 a year, right? I made it easy Uh, for you. Yeah. You weren't paying attention. Heather, okay. Oh, I was. I was. It took me a minute. Come on. $3,000, 10 years, right? So our bikes, we can fix our bikes that are 10 or 11 years old. So our bikes will last 10 years. You can buy a cheap electric bike for $8.95 or $9.95 on the internet. And how long is it going to last you? Oh, God. Well, the battery dies. Maybe a year, maybe two. So I would say you can buy it right or you can buy it twice. And if you buy it right, so, but some people, I love the fact they sell these because it gets people in the, I can't tell you how many people buy these cheap bikes, realize they bought a, a bucket of rust, a bucket of junk, and then they come to a pedigo and buy a pedigo store because at least it got them into the sport. So I'm not against them. I just think that smart consumers would do their homework and realize that if they buy one, they would buy the right one at the right time and buy one that's safe and buy one that's put together by a professional mechanic. Yeah. Okay. Who wants to put one together that was put together by your brother-in-law who might not tighten the front axle? Yeah, a lot of retailers are worried right now or or not worried, but creating protocols for when these bikes, these inexpensive bikes purchased online come into their store. Are they working on them? Are they sending the batteries home? Like, what are they doing? So that's Well, unfortunately, there's no easy answer to it. So one answer is to say, I'm not going to service them because I can't get the parts for them or I don't feel comfortable. That's probably the smartest thing they can do because they then take some liability if they then touch it. And if they can't get the parts, they now have an angry customer. Let's say they take in brand X and they call up the company and if they can get through them on the line, they get the part, whatever. And then if they even change a flat on it and then the motor 
fails a week later, they're going to blame that guy for you changed the flat. Now my motors failed. Like right. it's like a no win from a consumer perspective. It's unfortunate because they bought this inexpensive product and no way to service it. Now, if they bought it at Costco or Walmart or REI, they've got some hope, right? Maybe if they buy it at Costco, they're obviously not going to re- repair it or give their replace it or give their money back. If they bought it at REI, they've got a, you know, they got competent staff there to fix it. So I believe the future of this business is going to be only in the hands of those retailers that can service the bike after the sale, whether it be RI or Joe's Bike Shop or a Pedego store or a Trek store or a specialized store. That's the future of the business. The 400 companies we have making them, they can't sustain themselves because they have no way to do it. And they don't have the parts to fix them when they break. So not only do they have the parts, but nobody wants to fix them. None of our stores will will service another bike other than a Pedego. And some customers get mad at us. Well, they say, well, well, they're not our customers, are they? They didn't buy from us. So how, they can get mad at us, but they're not customers. If a customer's getting mad at it, oh my God, you call me up and I'll file away again. But a non-customer getting mad at us? I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't, I can't be empathetic to that. Right. What about battery recycling? Are you involved in the call to recycle or well, you know, the call to recycle thing is kind of a risky proposition because it's like pay now for something later. Mm-hmm. And there's no guarantee on it. I was super excited about it. I was all behind it. We had not come to our annual dealer conference and I thought this was the thing. And then my finance accountant starting to do the, the calculation of what it costs and what's it going to do and what happens if they're not there and what are the guarantees. So we surveyed our dealers and found out they've all got local s- solutions for battery recycling. It's right. not like they're the only game in town. There's right. all kinds of choices. You know, up until recently, you could take the batteries and jump them in the basket at Home Depot right? You don't have to have a whole evolved program. If somebody wants now, we'll certainly honor every... And what was interesting about the call to recycle program, they're kind of insistent we took everybody's batteries. Why would I take it? Why would I take the risk in taking brand X battery that might catch my shop on fire right. because I'm, I'm recycling batteries? No, we'll recycle Pedigo batteries. We can. There's lots of things we can do, but we certainly don't have... There isn't a glut of Pedigo batteries. They are ending up at recycling facilities, but we're not part of that program at, at this point. Maybe when it matures, we'll reconsider it. Yeah, no, I love how honest you are with your answers. I've been trying to do the math too for retailers and it's like it doesn't work. It does it's crazy. Now, you could could you could argue you could pass it on to the customer, which is probably what we would have done. Like you do it uh, but that's got, you know, it's got all kinds of thorny parts of that as well. But what about the guy that signs up for the program today and is not even in business in 3 years? Mhm. Yeah. He paid all that money and he's never going to see a single recycled battery yet he paid whatever it is per battery. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about the risk with the lithium-ion batteries and, and non, non-pedigo non batteries. Any thoughts about just, you know, that's been in the conversation a lot, the UL2849 and, and safe storage and handling. Any thoughts around that? Well, so the real challenge with batteries are is that, you know, are the cells safe? The cells are the things that cause fire, cause the problems. It's not the battery pack. It's not a 2849, I think, is an attempt by some biggies in the industry to try to control and squeeze the little guy out. I'm the little guy, okay? They're not going to squeeze me out, but that's an attempt to do that. And I've dealt with UL on lots of other issues. I'm not a big fan. I don't think there's a lot of value added to it, and the consumer could care less. So unless the law says it's got to be law 2849 or the new one now, they're coming up with safety requirements. Unless the the law demands it, there's no real useful purpose for us. We do so many other things beyond that for safety. Building the bike to be safe so that it doesn't catch fire is a good thing. It's a noble thing. It needs to be done. 
And it's a funny thing because Amazon said they wouldn't sell any bikes unless they're UL certified. Not right. a single bike they sell on Amazon today is UL certified. Not a single one. I mean, no. why tell everybody that if it's not true? UL touted it. Like UL, Amazon's not going to allow you to sell. Well, I don't sell on Amazon, so I really don't care. But there's a lot of stuff being sold on Amazon. I guarantee you they don't even know how to spell UL. <laughs> <laughs> it does come down just to safety, right? And right now we have voluntary things, but... And functional safety, too, which isn't even addressed. So the very first page of our owner's manual says, warning, electric bikes can be dangerous to use. OK, they are. We don't need to hide it. They can just like riding a motorcycle. My brother and my brother-in-law were both killed on motorcycles. Hmm. And my other brother owns an electric motorcycle dealership, the largest one in the country, uh, zero motorcycles in Orange County. We're still motorcycle fans, okay? But they're dangerous and you have to be kind. In every case that I know of, it wasn't even their fault. You know, it wasn't like they did anything wrong, but it didn't matter. At the end of the day, they're still dead, okay? So people drive cars and they get killed. There's car accidents happen. There just needs to be some degree of safety that's introduced at the time of the sale to the consumer to do everything you can to mitigate the risk of that person getting hurt or worse than that, killed. Yeah, I agree. Let's see. I got a couple more questions. If we could get the industry to get aligned, get all of our heads together when it comes to e-bikes, what do you think that we're we're not aligned on right now that might be limiting e-bike growth? Well, we're absolutely not aligned on a throttle versus a non-throttle. Uh, you know, our customers come in our store. We went to this store and they said that they're going to ban class two bikes, okay, or they're going to become illegal or they're bad, or they're dangerous, or they're all this kind of stuff. So the industry's clearly not aligned on that. In fact, the traditional industry are the worst offenders of all. The rest of the industry is running over them. They need to accept the fact that class two and throttles are part of the world, even on mountain bike trails. I mean, they're saying, well, class two are okay on paved paths, but not on a dirt path. Why not? Well, they, you know, they, they might cause erosion. Really prove it. <laughs> might cause erosion. What? Well, people are going to spin their tires out. Really? You sit on an electric bike and you hit the throttle and you tell me if the tires spin. Mm -hmm. It's just so much nonsense. So the industry is all tied up with these different organizations that are just anti-electric bike. I mean, I'll just call it what they are. They're a bunch of bike snobs. Somehow they think the trails in the past that the U.S. government and the state government and local governments pay, they're only for their elitists of those that can ride a bike. If you can't ride a bike, you shouldn't be able to ride on our trails. Oh, wait a minute. Who paid for them? The government paid for them, which is our taxpayer. So me, not an elitist, not a hardcore cyclist. I'm reasonably fit, but I have sciatica. So sometimes I can't ride a bike uncomfortably. I might get it when I'm out there and I want to get home. I shouldn't be allowed to ride on the trails, even the mountain bike trails. That's unbelievable. So there, there's a lot of fighting going on. And they're going to lose. They lost the throttle battle. They're going to they're losing it in the in the eye of the consumer. Mm -hmm. But it's unbelievable how naive and how narrow minded they are. So the industry needs to get together on that. The industry all needs so needs to get together and make sure that we're lined up in safety and some type of safety program. People for Bikes is working on it, but it's I was on the committee. I had to leave. I just couldn't stand it. We're going to do a study. Then we're going to do another study. Then we're going to study the study that we did. Meanwhile, people are getting hurt or killed. No, let's go out in safety. Let's In this case, it needs to be fire aim ready. Let's go out there and do safety. And yeah, we can improve on it, but we can train it. Basically, there's a whole bunch of books out there on bike safety. It's not a secret. An e-bike's no different. Bike safety should be paramount, not just e-bike safety. People get killed on cyclists all day long. And so we, the industry itself does not pay attention, in my opinion, enough on safety, on any e-bikes or otherwise. I'm so thankful we have your voice in the industry advocating for this. And I mean, you've touched so many people's lives and will continue to as you continue to expand and open more pedagogy stores. Is there anything that's keeping you up at night that's like really a stressor right now or... 
Are you pretty good? Uh, well, I'd say that, you know, we've had a slump in the industry post COVID. We had a really good aberration, I call it. You know, we had steady growth like this on a woo, we went like this, and now we're leveling off down. We're still on a steady growth. If you took that one dot off the top, it yeah. would be still a steady state. I'm fearful there might be some other, you know, massive disruption to the business, but I'm okay with where it is now. Uh, you know, everybody's got a little high inventory, ourselves included. We all thought that that we all wanted to believe the post COVID would, would do it, but it's a great time to buy an electric bike today because there's plenty to choose from. A year ago, we didn't have any in the warehouse. Our warehouse was empty. Our warehouse is overflowed today. Uh, but I'm confident that, you know, that when the season comes around next year, people will buy our products. So that's probably the only thing I, you know, I worry about supply disruption. The other thing is the government is tariffs on again, off again, on again, off again. They're, they're off right now. And I testified on Capitol Hill a month ago on the tariffs, fighting them. I was the only one from the bike industry there. The yeah. steel industry was there, the aluminum industry, the you know, the rat poison inventory, every industry in the world is represented on there. And there were pros and cons. There were people voting for the tariffs and people voting against the tariffs. Okay. And they all had this debate. Went on for a whole week. It was all when I say on Capitol, in this case, it was on Zoom. The first time I went and Trek and I both went, but I was the only I, I was the only one there. It's like, how can anybody else not be arguing for tariffs? I'm the only, I'm like this lone guy arguing against the tariffs. The good news is nobody was arguing for them. I don't think it was enough. Well, I'm glad you were there on behalf of the industry. Thank you for that. It's been awesome to get to know you and, and your retailers better through the work here at the MBDA. And I hope we can continue that and really appreciate keep up the good work. You keep up the good work. And I'm going to pay more attention to the MBDA because I think the organization is doing a fine job representing the minority of the store owners. And I know some of these big, bad bike companies don't necessarily treat their dealers very well. I'm the opposite of that. Our goal is to delight our customers as well as our store owners. And we never want to have any kind of antagonistic relationship with our stores. We try not to do anything that may cause them any harm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Don. It's been great to talk and get to know you oh, more and, and learn more about the, the company and where you're going. Thank you for your interest and thanking you for having me on. All right, listeners, thank you for listening to Bicycle Retail Radio. This podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry, dedicated to strengthening our retailers and cycling community. If this is your first episode, take time, listen to our past episodes. We'll sure, you're sure you're going to find some relatable insight and some nuggets in there you can take to your business. Special thanks to NBDA Development Director Rochelle Scouten for the editing and promotional graphics. We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. And with this, we go. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Music.